Welcome to the reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, January 22nd. I'm your reader, Will Potter. Let's start off today with the article, Bill Cuts Staples from Snap. Food aid could not be used to buy meat, nuts, canned fruit, or veggies. Iowans on the food assistance program known as SNAP would have far fewer food purchasing options, not being able to use the benefits to buy meat, nuts, or canned fruits and vegetables under legislation proposed by Republican lawmakers. However, the bill may be amended eventually to include more foods, Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley said. For the time being, the legislation as written, which has 39 House Republican sponsors, including Grassley, would limit SNAP program users to only food eligible for users of WIC, the Nutrition Assistance Program for Expectant Mothers. That means that SNAP users would be limited to purchasing WIC-approved foods like milk, juice, cereal, bread, rice, pasta, fresh fruits and vegetables, eggs, and yogurt. But SNAP users would no longer be able to purchase with the aid that many other foods, including meat, poultry, fish, canned fruits and vegetables, and items commonly used in food preparation like butter, flour, spices, and seasonings, sugar, vegetable oil, ketchup, mustard, mayonnaise, and other condiments. In addition to food banks and anti-hunger advocacy groups, among those registered as against the bill, according to state lobbying records, is Tyson Foods, the world's second largest processor of chicken, beef, and pork, with meatpacking plants in Iowa. Grassley said the legislation was designed to ensure accountability in Iowa assistance programs like SNAP to make sure that they are sustainable. The food assistance program is funded by the federal government and jointly administered by the federal and state governments. According to federal data, Iowa's share of the program administrative costs in 2020 budget year was $22 million, and its average administrative costs of $27.84 per case per month was 18th lowest among U.S. states. Grassley said the legislation, which was one of the 13 bills published by the House Republicans as their priorities, will work through the legislative process and could be amended. Any legislation that would change Iowa's SNAP program would require federal approval. Our goal is not just to eliminate swaths of things, Grassley said in a response to question about cutting meats and other categories of food about, out of SNAP program, but I think that there are needs but their needs need to be some accountability and make sure that they're really things that should, be, that should qualify. If you don't lead a healthy lifestyle, that leads to more use of the government-funded services. The legislation, House File 3, contains other provisions that would add more levels of oversight and reporting, which proponents of such proposals say is needed to limit fraud. Critics of such requirements say that they are extraneous because there is little fraud in the system now and adding hurdles could lead to rejecting individuals who are in need of the assistance. Such proposals have passed out of the Iowa Senate in recent years, but have not been passed out of the Iowa House. Luke Elzinga, an advocate group for anti-poverty policies and 
Policy and Advocacy Manager of the nonprofit Des Moines Area Religious Council, criticized the legislation and said it comes at a time when food banks and food pantries in Iowa are seeing record numbers of people, while the number of Iowans enrolled in SNAP has been falling for years. Iowa's average monthly SNAP participation of roughly $279,000 in 2022 budget year was the lowest since 2008, according to the federal data. The bill is a misguided and harmful bill that would severely limit food choices of Iowans on SNAP, kick people off the SNAP program, and increase hunger and food insecurity in our state, Elzinga said. There are a lot of Iowans struggling to put food on the table right now. We should be exploring ways to expand access to SNAP, not creating more barriers to receive assistance. The bill has not yet been assigned a subcommittee hearing, which is the first process and the, the first step in the legislative process. Now let's move on to another article. Parkersburg Couples Heifer Named Grand Champion at the National Western Stock Show A six-decade obsession to produce better beef cattle culminated recently when a heifer bred and raised by Merle and Myrna Schrage was named Grand Champion Maine Tanner Maine Anjou Female at the National Western Stock Show in Denver, Colorado, one of the world's most prestigious cattle shows. It felt wonderful, said Merrill Schrage of the January 14th Triumph by his heifer Izzy. It's been a good run. It was amazing. A championship at the National Western is covered by cattle showmen across the nation and represents the high water mark in 62 years of raising Angus and Maine Anjou cattle by the Shrages. The path to the prized purple ribbon entails a remarkable storyline. For the Parkersburg couple, who have slowly turned a small cow herd into a cow, into a show cattle juggernaut, Schrage bred heifers and steers have dominated local county fairs for years, increasingly getting closer to winning a big one. This is the first big one for my wife and I, Schrage said. The nice thing is we own the cow and the bull. She's not an A1 produced by artificial insemination cow. Shrage cattle have impressed at top shows in the past, including the reserve champion steer at the North American International Livestock Exposition in Louisville, Kentucky, a grand champion heifer at the South Dakota State Fair, and a handful of reserve champions at various major junior and open shows. The story began in late 1959 when 17-year-old Merrill, then a junior in high school, bought two heifers and an old cow. Merrill's wife also was drawn to cattle, and the two have made a formidable team over the years. The Srage herd began as registered Angus, but in 1972 came a milestone. Merrill made the decision to cross his herd with the emerging Maine Anjou breed. Merle and Myrna have two daughters, Melissa and Mary, and a granddaughter, Cassie Rice, who got her start raising and showing prize rabbits and has since evolved on into one of the cattle industry's young stars. It was Rice on the halter at the National Western. The Shrages did not attend due to Merle's health. The success in the show rings is remarkable when one considers the size of the Shrage herd. 
While many of the breeders have herds numbering in the hundreds or even thousands, the Shreiches have never had more than 50 brood cows and generally run about 35 or 40. Their freakishly high ratio, success ratio explains why foragers and cowmen seeking to upgrade their herds travel, the, travel down the gravel road to their 200-acre farm northwest of Parkersburg from hundreds of miles away every year. Over the decades, the Shrages have tirelessly promoted 4-H activities and offered their time and advice to young people learning the often confusing ropes of caring for and grooming show cattle. They, dominated, they donated a prize heifer to raise money for the Maine Anjou Association's junior organization. The Shrages were elated with their memorable championship, but don't expect the success to change their Iowa nice ways. Three days after the big win in Denver, Merle was at the Waverly Sale Barn doing what he likes and known best, looking for cattle and chatting with folks he's known his whole life. Now let's move on to, here's how a voucher bill would work. The legislature may okay measure this week. Iowa lawmakers could begin debating as early as Monday the proposal by Governor Kim Reynolds to establish taxpayer-funded educational savings accounts which Iowa families could use to pay for private school tuition and other related expenses. The proposal, which has moved through the legislative process at breakneck pace for such a large and complex piece of legislation, has sparked passionate debate. Iowans crowded into the Capitol and packed legislative hearing rooms over the past week to sound off on the fast-tracked proposal after the idea had failed previously. Some wore bright yellow shirts that read yes to ESA, and others held signs that said no vouchers in bold text, and I support Iowa's public schools. More than, in 16, more than 1,650 Iowans submitted written comments. House Democrats who opposed the bill said that there's a 73% of the comments submitted online opposed the bill, while 27% were in favor. Here's a rundown of what the bill would do. And the rest of this article has a lot of subheaders, starting with, what's in the bill? The proposal would create taxpayer-funded educational savings accounts valued at $7,598 in the first year, the amount the state spends per pupil on public K-12 education that families could use for private school tuition and other educational expenses. The program would be phased in over three years. In the third year, all K-12 students, including private school students, would be eligible for the funding with no income restrictions. The proposal also allows public school districts to use the unspent funding from teacher leadership and comp compensation professional development, and talented and gifted categorical funds to increase the teacher salaries. The government and House Republicans have said that the funding has been underutilized due to the prescriptive nature of the funding and process required to reallocate it. Next subheader, how will that affect funding to public schools? Public schools would lose about will lose out on the per-pupil funding for any students who choose to attend a private school. School districts, though, would get roughly $1,200 in state funding for each student who lives in the district but attends a private school, 
regardless of whether the student is a recent transfer or has always attended private school. That's new funding Reynolds and supporters argue could benefit some districts. But for districts with declining enrollment who lose a student to private school, it would be a net loss of $6,385 per student, while districts would get the estimated $1,205, they would also lose $7,590 state aid per pupil. So for every student who leaves, a district would need five or six already in private schools to make it a wash. Next subheader, how much will it cost? The governor's office estimates roughly 14,000 eligible students would participate in the program in the first year which would cost the state around $107 million in additional state funds deposited in the accounts for parents enrolling children in private school this fall. Reynolds' office estimates an additional roughly 6,000 students will apply in the second year, which would cost the state roughly $156.2 million that year. By the third year, every Iowa family could qualify to receive an amount regardless of income. The governor's office estimates nearly 20,000 new students could apply for private school assistance in the third year. That would roughly cost the state $313.8 million in the third year. By full implementation in the fourth year, the governor's office estimates that the total annual cost of the government-funded scholarship would be roughly $341 million. The governor's office based its estimate on the assumption that about 1% of public school students are likely to transfer. In total, over the course of four years, the plan would cost the state roughly $918 million. Over the same time period, the state is estimated to spend $15.2 billion on public education and collect $39.2 billion in overall revenue with expenditures of increasing K-12 spending by roughly 2.5% each year, according to Republican budget estimates. Reynolds has recommended that legislators provide $190 million more to public K-12 schools in the next academic year. According to the governor's office, Reynolds' budget proposal would leave a $2 billion unspent balance in the state's general fund budget. Democrats note the only information Republicans have provided about the bill's costs comes from their own estimates and those of the governor, not the nonpartisan legislative services agency. The agency has not analyzed the fiscal impacts of the bill, and Democrats have said that they'd like to see those estimates before it goes to another floor vote. House Democrat leader Jennifer Conferst of Windsor Heights said the agency's fiscal estimate may come Monday. House Speaker Pat Grassley said that he'd like to see the fiscal's estimate, but he pointed to the numbers coming out of the governor's office and have said the Republicans have been transparent about the cost of the program. Next subheader, who would be eligible? In year one, all kindergarten students, all public school students, private school students, or at or below 300% of the federal poverty level, which is $83,250 for a family of four. Year two, all kindergarten students, all public school students, 
private school students at or below 400% of the federal poverty level, $111,000 for a family of four. In year three, all K-12 students in Iowa, regardless of income. Next subheader is, what expenses would the law allow? The money is to be spent on private school tuition or other expenses like private tutoring, textbooks, or school-related fees or payments for educational therapies. That includes fees for private online classes, vocation and life skills classes approved by the Iowa Department of Education, materials and services for students with a disability from an accredited provider, including the cost of professional, paraprofessionals and assistants, standardized test fees, and advanced placement exams for college-level courses of, offered by high schools. The money is not to be spent on food, clothing, transportation, or disposable school supplies like pencils and paper, according to the bill's sponsor. Next subheader is, when do the accounts expire and what happens with leftover money? Money remains in a student's individual account until he or she graduates high school, turns 21, is removed from a private school, whichever occurs first. Any leftover money is transferred to the Iowa Department of Education to be deposited into the state's general fund. Final subheader, how will this new program be administered? Similar to the state's 529 college saving, 529 college savings plans, which are managed by the investment company Vanguard and overseen by the Iowa State and overseen by the Iowa State Treasurer's Office, the accounts would be created in the state treasury under the control of the Iowa Department of Education. A private company would administer the program and oversee those payments. Funding for the savings accounts would come from the money appropriated to the Department of Education from the state's general fund. Class Wallet Administrators Arizona's school voucher program, which has faced questions about lax financial oversight in recent years and is registered in support of Reynolds' bill. Now on to another article about that policy. It's called Voucher Plan Could Boost Private School Enrollment. An infusion of hundreds of millions of dollars every year could soon hit the private school market in Iowa thanks to a proposed state-funded private school financial assistance package being pushed by Governor Kim Reynolds and Republican state lawmakers. The money could have a single have a significant impact on the private school industry in Iowa, which as of the 2022-2023 school year included 183 schools and 33,692 students, according to the state education department data. That's about 7% of the 486,476 students in the state's public schools. But that impact could be, could be limited to who would benefits. Nearly half of Iowa's 99 counties, 42, do not have a private school within their boundaries. Most of the areas where there are no private schools are in rural areas with fewer and smaller towns, and many private schools are near at capacity and would find it difficult to add students. 
The proposal, which likely will be debated this week in the Iowa House and Senate, is to offer state funding to any Iowa student who wishes to attend private school. The student would receive $7,590 every year to be put towards tuition, textbook, classroom, materials, and other types of educational programming expenses. The program would be open first to new kindergartners, students who didn't attend a private school the year before, and students from low-income families. It would be gradually phased in, becoming available for more private school students, until in the fourth year, it would be available to all K-12 Iowa students. At full implementation, the governor's staff has estimates, has estimated the program will cost the state more than $340 million annually. A Republican legislator who, who chairs the Iowa Senate's Budget Committee said last week that he believes that the number, of, the number will actually be higher. The state's nonpartisan financial analysis agency has not yet completed its analysis and cost project projections for the proposal. Some have suggested that the new money pouring into the private school industry could lead to the creation of more private schools. Over time, quite possibly, said Tom Chapman, executive director of the Iowa Catholic Conference, which lobbies state lawmakers on issues that are important to Catholic bishops in Iowa. I think over time, as those resources become available for families, they could be there could be expansion. Florida's private school financial assistance program, one of the first in the country, was established in 1999. From 2000 to 2001 school year to 2021 to 22, the number of private schools in Florida has increased 53%, according to data from the state's education department. Private school enrollment has increased 19.3% over that same period. House Speaker Pat Grassley, a Republican from New Hartford last week, said that the creation of an expanded or new private schools in the state is definitely a possibility under the proposal. Obviously, there are some available slots that exist right now, but there could be more, Grassley said. But, also, but I also look at that as more competition, creating more choices for parents. So that might be a byproduct, but I don't think it happens just today. But over the course of time, I think that's a real possibility. Asked if there's enough room to accommodate the roughly 14,000 students the governor's office estimates would be eligible for the program in the first year, Grassley said that he expects some private schools may choose to expand and create more slots, while others like the way they are. It's just like in the public school system right now. We have schools that have reached a certain capacity and that will only take students that are willing to live within their border because they're reached capacity, Grassley said. So I think, the go I think that's going to be a conversation that they'll have to, that they'll, that I think that's going to be a conversation that they'll have to have in each community. Cedar Falls, Cedar Valley Catholic Schools supports the governor's student first bills, currently Senate File 92 and House File 68, according to Tom Novotny, the chief administrator of the Cedar Valley Catholic Schools. We believe parents are the primary educators of their children, and as such know what school environment fits, best fits their students' learning needs. If the bill makes it to the governor's desk and is signed into law, 
We anticipate additional families in the Cedar Valley will choose our schools for their students. We do have open spots across each grade level that would be available for new student enrollment. We look forward to welcoming new families into our school community, Natvani said. Now let's move on to analysis. Freshwater fish more contaminated with toxic forever chemicals. Eating just one freshwater fish a year can dramatically increase the amount of toxic forever chemicals coursing through a person's blood, according to a new study that reflects more than half a century of pollution contaminating the Great Lakes and rivers nationwide. The alarming finding is based on the analysis of hundreds of fish caught by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency since 2013. Though the EPA has concluded that some of the chemicals are harmful at any level, the agency hasn't drawn attention to its fish sampling or warned Americans they could be in danger. Nearly every fish tested by the EPA was tainted with perfluoroctane sulfonate, or PFOS, a forever chemical used for decades in scotchard, stained resistant fabrics, firefighting foam, and food packing manufactured by Minnesota-based 3M. PFOS builds in human blood, doesn't break down in the environment, and triggers health problems such as liver damage, impaired fertility, immune system disorders, thyroid disease, increased cholesterol levels, and reduced vaccine effectiveness. Long-term exposure also might cause cancer. These findings point to the urgent need to eliminate more releases of these chemicals into the environment, said David Andrews, a senior scientist at the nonprofit Environmental Working Group and one of the authors of the new study. We don't want this problem to get any worse, especially knowing how long it's going to take for it to get better. A single serving of freshwater fish during a year is equivalent to drinking water laden with 48 parts per trillion of PVOS for a month. Andrews and his colleagues concluded in their peer-reviewed study published Tuesday in the journal Environmental Research. To put that number into context, the nationwide median for PFOS in drinking water is estimated to be less than 5 parts per trillion. The highest concentration is detected in Chicago drinking water at 2.8 parts per million. In June, the EPA announced that there is effectively no safe exposure to PVOS and related chemical PVOA. Exposure from eating fish is of a particular concern for Native Americans, certain immigrant communities, and low-income Americans who depend on lakes and rivers for a significant portion of their diet, Andrew noted, citing other studies. Freshwater fish in the United States appear to be significantly more contaminated than seafood. The median concentration of forever chemicals in the EPA testing was 20, 278 times higher than what the Food and Drug Administration found during the past four years in saltwater fish, shrimp, lobsters, clams, and oysters. The highest level of PVO, PFOS detected in Great Lake fish at 64,400 parts per trillion came from white perch caught in Lake Erie near Monroe, Michigan, a Chicago Tribune reviewer of EPA found. Yellow perch in Lake Michigan near Holland, Michigan and Whiting were tainted with 22,900 parts per trillion and 12,500 parts per trillion respectively. 
The level of level in walleye caught off the Door County Pencil, Peninsula in, in Wisconsin was 11,500 parts per trillion. An EPA sampling in Great Lakes from 2013 through 2015 did not include fish from Illinois waters, but in 2010, the agency found 19,000 parts per trillion of PFOS in brown trout caught off North Avenue Beach in Chicago. Disturbing levels also have been detected in the nation's rivers and streams. Northwest of Madison, the EPA found 47,200 parts per trillion in smallmouth bass caught in the Wisconsin River. Upstream from Cave in Rock in deep southern Illinois channel, catfish pulled from the Ohio River had a whopping 135, trillion, 135 parts per trillion of PFOS. Closer to Chicago, the agency found 25,500 parts per trillion in channel catfish from the Fox River in Lake Barrington. The level in smallmouth bass from the, Can the Kankakee River near Borbanas was 9,530 parts per trillion. Unlike other toxic substances such as mercury or PCBs, worrisome concentration of forever chemicals aren't limited to specific types of fish, EPA data shows. PFOS and related compounds, known as per- and polyfluoroalkali substances, or PFAS, bind to fish tissue and can't be cooked or trimmed out. Mercury, for example, tends to be higher in bigger, older fish, said Gavin Dehnert, an emerging, an emerging contaminants researcher at Wisconsin Sea Grant, who, along with several indigenous tribes in Upper Midwest, recently launched another study of PFAS in the region's lakes, rivers, and fish. Andrew speculates one reason why the EPA hasn't publicized its test results is because fish are an important source of protein and other nutrients. Burdening Americans with PFAS isn't worth the trade-off, he said. PFAS still aren't regulated in the United States, the Biden administration is proposing to list PFOS and PFOA as hazardous substances under federal law, which would make it easier to force polluters to clean up contaminated sites at their own expense. Updated fish consumption advisors aren't on the administration's agenda, though some, state including, some states, including Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, caution people to limit or avoid eating certain fish based on PFOS contamination. You never want to hear that those chemicals whose names you can't pronounce are in the water you're drinking or in the fish you're eating, said Christy Remacule, an assistant professor under civil and environmental engineering at the University of Wisconsin. You are listening to the reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, January 22nd on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Russell E. Dolan. Russell E. Dolan, 37, of Waterloo, died Friday, January 20th at his home surrounded by his family. Visitation will be 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. Thursday, January 26th at Hagarty Wachoff Garup funeral service on West Ridgeway. A private graveside service will take place in a, at a later date in Mount Olivet Cemetery. For a complete obituary, visit www.hagardywachoffgroup.com. 
Lonnie P. Olendek. Lonnie P. Olendek, 55, of Laporte City, died Wednesday, January 18, 2023, at home surrounded by family after a courageous battle with cancer. He was born March 9, 1967, in Waterloo, the son of Kenneth and Darlene Olendek. Lonnie graduated from Dysert Genuso High School in 1985. She attended Hawkeye Community College, studying farm business management. He married Mindy Arp on November 17, 1990, in Mount Vernon. They were members of the Genesso United Methodist Church. Through high school, Lonnie worked with a close friend and mentor, Don Kirsten, raising hogs, which led to his involvement in starting the family farm with his dad in 1988. Together, the farm has successfully grown to include his boys, which, were, which was his lifelong dream. Family was the most important part of his life, on and off the farm. His wife, Mindy, was his whole world. He looked forward to her every day. He looked forward to every day with her. He was involved in coaching his kids in youth sports and was always their biggest fan in life. Lonnie had a quick wit, and he was the only, and he was the life of the gathering and always enjoyed making people laugh and feel good. He is survived by his wife, Mindy of Laporte City, children Matt Olendek of Laporte City, Jamie Niebuhr of Ankeny, Jack Olendek of Laporte City, granddaughters Carly, Kate, and one of and one on the way, parents Kenneth and Darlene Olendek, Buckingham brothers Doug and Doug Olendek, Dysart and Chris Olendek of Cedar Falls, and several nieces and nephews, preceded in death by his grandparents. Funeral services are at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, January 26, 2023, at the Genesau United Methodist Church in Buckingham. Burial at the Genesau Township Cemetery, Buckingham. Visitation is 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday, January 25th, 2023, at Lock at Tower Park, 4140 Kimball Avenue, Waterloo. Directed memorials to Genesau United Methodist Church or Cedar Valley Hospice. Visit, visit www.lockfuneralservices.com to leave condolences. Newton Charles Wagner. Newton Charles Wagner of Dysart passed away peacefully at his home on January 17, 2023. Newt was born December 16, 1928 in Urbana Township, Illinois, the son of James Elise Wagner. James and Elise Wagner. He served in the Air Force from 1945 through 1949. Newt married his sweetheart, Nellie Kirby, in August of 1949. They raised seven sons and a daughter and made their home, for the most part, in Rockford, Illinois area. He was employed at the Continental Electric and then at the United States Postal Service in Rockford. After retirement, they moved to Chetek, Wisconsin for three years, where Newt spent most days fishing. They wintered in Falcon Heights, Texas for many years and enjoyed meeting new friends and fish and fishing in the warm weather. Then they moved to Dysart in 1996, where they were members of the Cavalry Baptist Church. Nellie passed away from cancer after 51 years of marriage in 2000. Newt then married Anna Smith in 2002, and she passed in 2017. Newt is survived by his children, Paul of Billings, Montana, 
Charles of Rockford, Illinois, John of Dysart, Iowa, Robert of Winnebago, Illinois, David of Laurel, Montana, James of Rockford, Illinois, Ruth Blanche of Roscoe, Illinois, daughter-in-law Suzanne Wagner of Winnebago, Illinois, 29 grandchildren, 39 great-grandchildren, and two great-great-grandchildren. He is preceded in death by a grandson, Joshua, and a son, Stephen, in December 2020. A private, fa- a private service, family service and celebration of life will be held in Rockford, Illinois at a later date. Arrangements are with the Overton Funeral Home at 707 Clark Street, Dysart, Iowa. Their phone number is 319-476-4355. Condolences may be left at www.overtonfuneralhomes.com. Patricia, Pat, and Marquis. Patricia, Pat, and Marquis, 88, of Cedar Falls, passed away on Thursday, January 19th, 2023. She was born September 21st, 1934, in Marshalltown, daughter of Earl and Clara Reinsch. Day. Pat graduated from Boone High School, then married Douglas Eugene Marquis on December 26th, 1952. She was a devoted mother and homemaker. Pat was preceded in death by her parents, her husband of 58 years, Doug, son-in-law, Alan Kozak, and siblings, Catherine Otto, Donald Duane, and Robert Day. She is survived by her children, Cheryl Kozak of Alaska, Steve Marquis of Denver, Brenda Marquis of Dubuque, and John Marquis of Olwine. Grandchildren, Christopher Kozak, Summer Swartz, Mike Marquis, Kyle Marquis, Coda Marquis, Kellyanne Clark, Adam Yarlot, Joseph Marquis, a great-grandchild and great-grandchildren, Jaden, Maya, Mackenzie, Kaylee, Kevin, Leland, Raylan, Jackson, Bao, Lucas, Dane, and Noah. Sisters Anita Sheehan and Rosalie Bach of Boone, Jeanette Cooper of Tennessee, and Marissa Schumacher of Chicago, and a large extended family, cherished family reunions rarely had less than 100 in attendance. Pat's memorial service will be at 11 a.m. on Tuesday, January 24, 2023, with an hour of visitation prior at Dolph Van Hoof Schoof Funeral Home in Cedar Falls. Lunch will be follow lunch will follow at St. Patrick Catholic Church. Private family interment at a later date at the Sacred Heart Cemetery in Boone. Memorials may be directed to the St. Patrick Catholic Church and condolences may be left at www.dollfuneralhome.com. Pat enjoyed playing bridge and volunteering at church and and her children's schools. She was an outstanding cook who had who loved Lovely prepared elaborate, who lovingly prepared elaborate meals for her friends and family. Pat was a consummate caretaker to her grandchildren and great-grandchildren and attended all of their events when possible. Now let's move on to the sports section, starting with college women's basketball. UNI knocks out UIC 79-44 for home sweep. Northern Iowa won in dominating fashion over the University of Illinois Chicago Saturday in Missouri Valley Conference women's basketball action, sprinting away with a 79-44 victory at the McLeod Center. 
The Panthers orchestrated a complete game over the Flames, with the defense shutting them down at the basket and forcing three times as many turnovers as they experienced. Offensive, you and I connected on 12 of 30, getting 30 points, 30 point makes from seven different players in the victory. The win puts the Panthers a game and a half ahead of Illinois State in the league standings. The Redbirds in it at 6-1. I just thought that they were locked from start to finish defensively, head coach Tanya Warren said. We rebounded well. We had two M phases, defend the bounce and defensively rebound, and I thought we did a terrific job of that, and our ability to get stops allowed us to get out and run in transition and really get into an offensive rhythm. The first quarter saw both teams exchange a bucket and three-pointer to tie the game at 5-5 to before Grace Boffilai scored a go-ahead basket and Northern Iowa tacked on nine more points, billed to a 16-5 to lead. Chicago bounced back late with five points, but in the second quarter, Northern Iowa punched hard with 19 points, including five by Maya McDermott, as she also had 10 points in the first half. I just stayed in a routine, I think, which Warren does a really good job of making sure, whether we're on the road or at home, staying in a routine. That's what I did today, and we got a good win, McDermott said. Everyone was involved, and it was a good win for us today. Meanwhile, Bofelli gave no second chances in the paint with six defensive rebounds and scored the final second to, into halftime, 39-18. to 18. The second half was a mop-up operation as you and I built its lead to 38 points in the fourth quarter. McDermott, Cam Finley, and Taryn Wharton all scored in double figures. Bofelli had, sev- had seven points and eight rebounds, while freshman Riley Gobel had four steals and three block shots. You and I is next in action when it hits the road to play, the Missouri-, to play Missouri State on Thursday. Now on to some college men's basketball. Sensebao scores 27, Ohio State tops Iowa. There was no stopping a desperate Ohio State basketball team this Saturday. Ask Iowa. The Hawkeyes watched the Buckeyes score inside and out with ease, shooting 64%, 64 64.7% from the field in the second half to pull away a 93-77 Big Ten victory at the Value City Arena. Iowa trailed 37-35 to at halftime, but couldn't answer an Ohio State team, which opened the second half on a 12-7 run and never let the Hawkeyes get any closer than 8 points the rest of the game. We had a couple of mistakes on the defensive end in the first half, and we needed to come out and play with more heart in the second half, but we kind of fell apart, Iowa guard Aaron Ulis said in a Leafield Sports postgame interview. That starts with me. I'm the point guard. While Euless shouldered the blame, coach Fran McCaffrey said Iowa's issues were shared by the entire team. That was a very poor performance by our team. Too many turnovers. We got destroyed on the glass. That's unacceptable. Not a good performance, McCaffrey said. We've got to be better in the next one. In addition to turning the ball over 14 times, one fewer than its highest total against the Big Ten opponents this season, the Hawkeyes were out-rebounded 36-29 and outscored 50-32 in the paint as they lost 
for the first time in five games. Desperately needing a win to end their own five-game losing streak, the Buckeyes shot 56.3% for the game. Only Eastern Illinois, which shot 60% in its win at Iowa in December, buried baskets at a higher rate than Ohio State did against the Iowa defense Saturday. The Hawkeyes had no answers for freshman Bryce Sensabaugh, who hit 10 of 12 shots on his way to a career-high 27-point performance to lead five Ohio State players in double figures. Isaac LeKelly, a graduate transfer from Oklahoma State, who made his second start in eight games, was equally problematic for Iowa. Entering the game with a scoring average of 3.1 points per game, he doubled his previous season high with an 18-point game and matched a season best with 10 rebounds. He kept driving, backing guys down, and didn't react to it, McCaffrey said. He backcut a lot, and we weren't physical, physical enough with him. Sensa Bao said, Listen about and LaKelly combined for 10 of the 12 points that the Buckeyes scored in the opening minutes of the second half, taking a 49-39 lead when Sensabao completed a three-point play with 16 minutes, 20 seconds remaining. Ohio State moved ahead to, to stay after Ulysses scored two of his 12 points on Iowa's first possession of the second half, trying the game at 37-37. Sensabao answered on the ensuing possession with the third of four three-point shots, he hit in the five attempts to give the Buckeyes a lead that they would not relinquish. I thought we had some players step up and make plays, Ohio State coach Chris Holtman said, saying that he liked the way LeKelly, who had combined for eight total points during the Buckeyes losing streak, attacked his matchups. He got out in transition where he is at his best. We told him he needed to be more assertive, and he was. While the Hawkeyes trailed by just two points at the break, Iowa's issues started in the opening half. A 12-0 run that included a pair of three-point baskets by Sean McNeil led Ohio State to a, to a lead which reached 28-17 with just over 18 minutes to go before halftime. The Hawkeyes answered with, nine of two, with a 9-2 run of their own pulling within 33-31 on a three-pointer by Peyton Sanford, with 5 minutes and 10 seconds remaining in the half. It proved to be the last basket Iowa would, ha would make in the first half, which saw both teams go scoreless over the final 3 minutes and 6 seconds. We had a shaky first half, Euless said. At the half, we talked about how we needed to come out and get stops on defense, make some plays, and make sure that we played with a warrior mentality, we came out flat. That didn't happen, and McAfee, McCaffrey said the final possession of the first half pretty much summed up how the day went for the Hawkeyes. We didn't play with any sense of intelligence at all, he said. The last possession, down two, we wanted to take the last shot. Instead, we go 900 miles an hour, and they take it away. We've got veterans out there who should know better. Iowa was led by Chris Murray, who finished with 22 points and team-leading totals of 7 rebounds and 4 assists. Philip Rebracca added 15 points. On to another college men's basketball. Anderson leads Oklahoma State past number 12 Iowa State. 
Avery Anderson scored 18 points, including the go-ahead free throws, and Oklahoma State defeated number 12 Iowa State 61-59 on Saturday for its first win over a ranked team this season. Caleb Boone added 13 points for the Cowboys, who won their second straight game. Osun Osuni scored 15 points, and Gabe Kalsher added 14 for Iowa State, which had won seven of its last eight games. Cyclones sharpshooter Caleb Grill spent most of the second half on the bench, wearing a back brace and wasn't in the game in the closing minutes. Iowa State led 27-11 in the first half. The Cowboys cut their deficit to six, but didn't score for nearly three minutes to close the first half, and Iowa State was up 35-25 at the break. Osuni, who entered the day averaging 8.6 points per game, had four dunks and 12 points in the first half. Oklahoma State rallied early in the second half, and the Cowboys finally took a 55-54 lead on a pair of free throws by Anderson with just over three minutes to play. Oklahoma State led 60-59 in the final minute, but turned the ball over when Anderson traveled after being trapped in the corner. Iowa State's Trey King missed a three-pointer and committed a foul on the rebound attempt. Oklahoma State's Woody Ness Newton made the first and missed the second free throw with 3.3 seconds left, and Iowa State missed a desperation heave. Here's a minor subheader here. Big picture. Iowa State. The Cyclones missed Grill late in the game. He's a stabilizer for the Cyclones and one of their best shooters. Oklahoma State. The Cowboys overcame injuries to claim the win. Guard Brees Thompson left the game early in the second half with a left knee injury. Mosu Sissi, a 7'1 forward who leads the Big 12 in rebounding and blocked shots, played sparingly because he's recovering from an ankle injury. He went down in the closing seconds of the game. Now let's move on to some high school wrestling with Don Bosco, WSR, score huge victories. Don Bosco of Gilbertville had four individual champions as the Dons won the two-day prestigious Herb Ingen's Invitational Saturday. The Dons got individual victories from Miles McCon at 138, Andrew Kimball at 160, Jared Thury at 220, and Mac Ortner at 285. Additionally, Cole Frost was third at 113 pounds. Jackson Larson was third at 120. Caden Knack was third at 145. Kyler Knack was second at 152. And Jacob Thury was second at 170. McMahon edged Charlie Viet of East Sac County 3-0 to win his title. After close wins in the quarterfinals and semifinals, Kimball pinned Jira Caligos of Carroll in a 4-minute 24 to win at 160. After pinning his first four opponents of the tournament, Jared Thury scored a 25-10 technical fall over Tonganoxie's Hunter Benix at 220 while Ortner capped off the Don's performance by pinning Carol Colton Wheeland in 1 minute and 30 at 285. In another highlight match, the tournament Kyler Knack dropped a 3-1 sudden victory decision to Kellen Smith of West, Hanick, of Han West Hancock in the 152 final that featured the number 1 and number 2 ranked wrestlers for 1A. 
Smith also edged Knack in last week's Hudson Invitational Final. Jessup's Cooper Hintz took second at 160. He lost 3-1 to Draylen Schwitzer of Carroll in the first title match. Other top finishes for the Jayhawks had Aiden Bergman 4th at 113, Ethan Kral 5th at 120, Trevin De La at 4th, at 126, and Skylar Blad was third at 220. And here's a subheader for a different section. Go Hawks win Ed Wigner. Waverly Shellrock got individual titles from Ryder Block at 138, Boz Diaz at 145, and Danny Diaz at 160. As the Go Hawks topped the Southeast Polk and Bettendorf for the team title in the 24 team Winger Invitational. Ryder won by medical forfeit over Oregon State Comet. Uh, McKin- McKinley Robbins of Green County in the finals. Baz Diaz in a battle of number one versus number two beat Bettendorf's Tico Carmichael eight to three. Danny Diaz beat fifth-ranked Gabe Carver of Urbandale five zero to win at one sixty. In one of the highlight matches of the tournament, second-ranked Fort Dodge freshman Deshaun Ross beat top-ranked McRae Haggerty. 4-2 in a sudden victory to win at 165. Ross was dinged for stalling for the second time with an 11 seconds left to force SV and scored his winning takedown with 51 seconds remaining in the extra period. At 285, third-ranked Carson Hagen of Dowling edged second-ranked Jake Walker 3-2. The Gohawks also got third from Riker Graf at 113, a Fifth from Zane Behrens at 132, fifth from Ethan Bibbler at 152, and a fifth from 220 at Caden Weatherell. Drew Campbell of Cedar Falls took third at 220, beating Kale Winter of Waukee Northwest 6-4 for third. Gerald Norton was seventh of 160. Another subheader, Hudson wins Red Hawk Invitational. Ben Holton at 138, Blake Carolyn at 152, and Carter Boeing at 160 all won individual crowns Saturday as the Pirates won the North Tama Red Hawk tournament. Hudson finished with 173.5 points to edge Sigourney Coyota and Columbus Catholic. The signature win for the Pirates was when unranked Ben Holton beat fourth-ranked Colt Knack of North Tama 4-3 to finish 5-0 in a round-robin format at 138. The Sailors crowned four champions as Gavin Reed at 132, Max Magania at 170, Carson Hartz at 182, Mason Neep at 220 all earned gold. Reed pinned Dan McLaughlin of Sigourney Kyoto at 3 minutes 41 seconds to win his title, while Magania pinned Jack Claren of S. Luque in in 1 minute 17 seconds at 170. Hearts went 3-0 with 2 falls at 182, while Nip went 4-0 with 4 falls. Connor Knudsen added a runner-up finish at 285 for Columbus. And that does it for today's reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, January 22nd. I'm your reader, Will Potter. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.